I have been very, very blunt and very direct about the law. And I've shown you passages from Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews, to name a few, in the New Testament, all of which unequivocally teach that the law made you a slave, the law was what men had as a result of disobedience, refusal to come into the presence of God, and they ended up under the law. But there are those who would say, well, I have a lot of questions then. Number one, how then would the Bible say, David, quoting David in the Psalms, I delight in your law, O Lord, and I meditate on it day and night. And moreover, the law is righteous. If you say that the law made slaves out of people, how could you also say that the law was righteous? That's one question. And I have several others where, from both the Old and the New Testaments. In addition to that, people say, but, but this was the law of God. He wrote it with his own fingers on tablets of stone. So, and he said that it would, Jesus said he didn't come to do away with it. Let's begin there. What about the righteousness that is in the law? Or for that matter, the glory that was in the law? Whose law was it? It was the law that God gave. Why did God give the law? God gave the law until the seed should come. So then the question is, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to preserve the Jews as a people. Because the enemy, beginning in the ancient reaches of, of the Old Testament, was the accuser of the brethren. It meant that if the enemy had any chance to bring an accusation against anyone, his name, Ha-Satan, is that of the prosecutor, the one who brings the charge, like he did in the book of Job. What is his intention when he brings a charge against someone? To call down the judgment of God upon a person, hopefully for their destruction. Now, were the Jews deserving of this? Of course they were. When God brought them to Mount Sinai and invited them to come up into his presence, and they refused, what alternative did that leave God? Except to destroy them. In fact, God told Moses, he said, I'm going to send the angel of the Lord with you, but don't disobey him because he won't be tolerant of you. He'll destroy you. The law was God's way of protecting Israel from the accuser by setting up punishments, consequences for the infractions of the law before the fact. So once God had spoken, at, even the enemy was obligated to abide by the rules. The law then, ironically, 
though it enslaved Israel, saved Israel, saved them from annihilation. This is not about saving people from going to hell. It's to save them from the consequences, the punishments associated with wrongdoing. It's like the law may keep you out of prison. If a person is, is uh, inclined to misbehave, the law may in fact so restrain one's character, restrain one's conduct, as to keep them out of prison. So the purpose of the law, it was God who gave it, so surely it was God's law. But why God gave it and the character of God revealed in and through it are just as important considerations. The character of God was to show mercy, as much mercy as could be shown under the law. That mercy did not include the grace of salvation, but it did include the mercy that stayed the hand of God, <clears throat> excuse me, preventing annihilation. This served the purpose of God because God was looking forward to the time when the seed would come. Because the plan of God was to make humans into his heirs and therefore that they would be preserved until that eventuality, that certainly was consistent with the plan of God. When Israel was unfaithful, God yet showed his mercy. Excuse me, on that day when he brought them out of Egypt and they were assembled at Mount Sinai, except for the fact that it was by the hand of God that they were delivered from Egyptian slavery, they were slaves. God had set them free, but they were still thinking and acting as slaves. So, what did they need? They needed to be made into a nation. They needed to be protected from their enemies. They needed some guarantees for their economy and for their health. And all these things God gave them. What did they do to deserve these things? Nothing. These were the benevolent gestures of God. Did did they need these things? Of course they did. It's somewhat like this. On one occasion... My daughter was thinking of moving to the city of Austin in the state of Texas. And she was desirous of moving fairly rapidly. So she came up with the thought that she needed some help to move. We needed some financial help. So she approached me with a request. And I had her make up a budget. Now she listed some pretty obvious items like rent, uh, gas, and so on. But because in that time she was still pretty young, she didn't, there were things that she did not think about that she would need money for until she would be able to, to get on her feet. For example, she didn't think about food. You know, she, I assume that she just thought that she would get down there and she'd have food. She'd always had food at my house, so why, should, why would she not think that getting there she would suddenly have food? 
she didn't think about things like insurance and um, paying taxes on various things and so on. So I looked at her budget and I knew that she had asked for the major things, but I also knew that she needed things she didn't ask for. And although it cost me more, I knew that these things being necessary, that if she didn't have them, I'd simply have to pay for them later, or she'd have to figure out some way of getting them. And that way was not apparent to me, and I'm sure she hadn't even thought about it. So I suggested that she modify her budget to include these additional items. And her point of view was, oh, that's great, I'm glad you thought about it. Well, what was I doing? I was being righteous in my, father, in my being a father to her. Why? Because I knew what she needed even though she didn't. Or she didn't think to, to, to look at those things. God was the same way with the Jews. God knew what they needed. Yes, they had been freed from Egyptian slavery. But beyond that, what did they need? Well, they needed these things. They needed to be made into a nation. So the law arranged their relationships to each other and to God, establishing them as a nation. What if God hadn't given them the law? Then it would have been okay for a man to covet his neighbor's wife. And if he wanted his neighbor's wife badly enough, there would be nothing wrong with him killing his neighbor to obtain his wife. Well, is this anything like what God would have them be? No, of course not. So the law was righteous in the sense that although they didn't know what they needed and didn't know what to ask for, God set it up to protect them and to care for them. But in the sum and substance of the law, in all that the law is, it, is not, it didn't, didn't touch the transcendent nature of man, didn't save anybody's soul, didn't teach them the character of God. It just acted for their best interest. And so when, when David would see as debauched as David was, one who would kill another man in order to get his wife, when David would, that's the case of Bathsheba and Uriah, when David would see the goodness of God to himself and to the nation, he, like others before him and like others after him in the New Testament, would comment on the goodness of God. What would these people have thought if they could truly experience and see the grace of God that appeared through the Lord Jesus Christ. They would hold opinion like Paul, or with Paul, and they would say, the law that brought, or the administration that brought death and condemnation, this is Second Corinthians 3, was glorious, but not glorious when compared to the Spirit of God and the administration of the Spirit. So it was a comparative thing. So, is the law glorious? Was the law righteous? Of course it was glorious because it reflected the goodness of God. And was it righteous? Yes, it showed the benevolent nature of God's character to people who were rejecting Him. So the law is about God, or these are dim reflections. 
It says in fact that the law was a shadow of good things to come. But the substance is Christ. And no one can fail to, to see that point. Now, so the, in these questions about the law, someone may ask, was the law righteous? Yes, because it showed the character of God. Was the law, did the law show the good, was the law good? Yes, it was good in that it showed the goodness of God. But was the law complete in what man needed and what the law purported to do? And the answer is no. The law was weak in that it did not contain any provision for salvation and indeed it couldn't. What about the, the, the statement of Jesus in Matthew 5 when he speaks about the law not being done away? In the 17th verse of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. I tell you that until heaven and earth will disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of, my, of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until, until everything is accomplished. And then he goes on to say, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right? So, is this passage teaching that the law will not even in the smallest stroke of the pen disappear? Is that what it's saying? No, of course not. This is what it's saying. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The first thing you must note is that he's not only speaking about the law, he's also speaking about the prophets. Right. Now, when a prophecy has been fulfilled, is it any longer standing? No. Can we understand that a prophecy might be fulfilled? Are there any prophecies that were fulfilled? Because he says the law and the prophets... What, what is an example of a prophecy that was fulfilled? Well, consider Isaiah 53, one of the prophets. And the prophecy says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Referencing the scapegoat. Or you may even choose from that to reference the Passover lamb. The prophecy of the Lamb was fulfilled, was it not? Is not Jesus the Lamb? According to John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Did Jesus come and did he die for us? The answer is yes. He came and yes, he died for us. Are we then still waiting for this event to occur? No. Then why do people celebrate Passover? Why would a Christian celebrate Passover? 
To do that is to say that the prophecy has not been fulfilled. The Lamb has not come. Because the Passover, you see, was a shadow of the Lamb to be slain at the cross. And the eating of the Passover was symbolic to the reference of, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life within you. That's not speaking of cannibalism. It's saying, if you appropriate for yourselves the remedies that I have accomplished for you on the cross, like if you ate the flesh of the lamb, then you will have the life that I've promised you. But when, when Christians then celebrate Passover, they're acknowledging that Jesus did not die for them. Because if he has died, if he has come and he has died, then the, the form gives way to the substance. I know that there are some who say, well, I just want to be solid with my Jewish brethren or my or Jewish friends. The Jews still have rejected Christ and do not believe and do not accept that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why they celebrate the Passover. At least you could say for them they do it in a state of unbelief. But for the one who says he believes that Jesus is that lamb and then eats the Passover in anticipation of the coming of the lamb, such a person is absolutely double-minded and has no conviction that Jesus is the one who died on the cross as the lamb of God. No. So when the scriptures say, do not think that I've come to, to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Has he fulfilled the law? And has he fulfilled the writings of the prophets? That's the question. Because if he has, here is the applicable scripture. It says, not not the least stroke of the pen will in any way disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Has everything been accomplished? Well, according to Paul's letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 1.14, or 2.14 rather, he says that Jesus fulfilled the law of ordinances that were against us, that was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The cross then represents the fulfillment of everything that was spoken in type and shadow by the prophets, the law and the prophets, that Jesus is referring to here. Now, of course, since that time, and in the New Testament, you've had other prophecies and other prophets. The prophecies of that, for example, the prophecies of, the, of John in the, in the book of Revelation, have not all been fulfilled. So those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled and Jesus was not referring to them. But the, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled and the majority of those prophecies have been fulfilled. There's some like from the book of Daniel in the 70 weeks of Daniel or some from Ezekiel that speaks of the, of the dispersion of the Jews and their return. Some prophecies like that have not yet been fulfilled. But Jesus will fulfill all of the prophecies that, will, that are yet to be fulfilled and has fulfilled the majority of other prophecies, especially the prophecies relating to the Messiah.
but all of the law he has fulfilled. Therefore the statement, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets, None, it will never pass away, that's simply not true. He did fulfill the law. And having fulfilled it according to Colossians, he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Finally, someone may ask, well, should we not learn about our Jewish roots? Should we not learn the, the Jewish heritage of the Christian faith? Well, first let me say, I am definitely not one against learning about various things. But when you lump things together, you need to, they need to be pulled apart for you to properly see what it is that you have. The Christian faith did not come out of Judaism. Jesus was born of Jewish heritage in the flesh. But the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians the 5th chapter, From this time on we regard no one any longer according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Even though we once looked at Christ that way we do so no longer because if any man be in Christ he's a new creation. Right? Jesus was a Jew in the flesh but he was the son of God. And he did not come to redeem us through the law. He came to redeem us from the law. The tree into which we've been grafted in is not Judaism. First, uh, the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, refers to, Judah, to the Jews as natural branches on an olive tree and to the Gentiles as wild olive branches grafted in where the natural branches were broken off. But the tree is not Jewish. The tree is the living God. And to be grafted in, we're not grafted into Judaism. We're grafted into a heavenly existence in time. This is the kingdom of God. You can't have it both ways. The history of God's people is not the history of the Jews. Now, if you want to learn about the Jews... If you want to learn about Jewish customs and practices, that's fine. I don't have anything against that. But do not import those practices into the Christian faith because they do not belong. Jesus, in fact, fulfilled the requirements that the law set up. You were not saved to become a Jew. You were not saved to be grafted into Judaism. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. The vine is the living God. The branches are humans. The fruit that is meant to be born on the branch is what is already in the vine. We are heavenly beings. We're born again from heaven. And we're living on the earth as heavenly beings in time. The children of God. We're not Jewish. We, did not we are not descended from twelve tribes, unless indeed we are by the flesh. But that profiteth nothing. If you're a Jew, you still need to be saved. You need to be saved through Jesus Christ. The practice of going back and learning about the Torah, if it's educational, I don't have anything against it. But for most people it isn't educational. They're wanting to learn about how to practice Judaism. And to you I would say, 
if you if you're involved in that, you've fallen from grace. And if you're involved in teaching people to go back to it, then you have become a deceiver. You've become a deceiver. Because you're deceiving people who did not have to bear the yoke of the law because they were free in Christ. And if you've gone back to teach them that, you've been, you're participating in a deception. Now, it may be that you haven't been warned before, but now you're being warned. God is not mocked. And God will begin to call an at- attention and to address this thing, this matter, firmly and directly. So this is as much of a warning to abandon that because it does not in any way belong in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sons of God. You're not slaves as under the law. Your righteousness is in Christ. It's not in the keeping of the law. I'm Sam Solon. God bless you and I'll see you again. Bye-bye.